Uh, Father, we thank you so much, God, for gathering us here. We thank you, Lord, for your grace that allows us, uh, Father, to uh, extend deep felt appreciation and kindness, uh, Father, towards others. We don't deserve it, but yet you sent Jesus and he died on a cross for us. Uh, so God, what joy it is, Father, when we're able to, to share that among one another and, and, and even in the demonstration of that, be able to uh, show to the world, Father, that there is something more uh, about the Christian gospel than just getting what you deserve, than just getting uh, what people give to you because you've given them something, but um, it's because, Father, of, of the tremendous uh, nature of the gift that is Christ, God, that we can live selflessly and we can live sacrificially. So we thank you, Father, for uh, this fellowship. We thank you, Father, for uh, what you're doing here and among us. We thank you, Father, for uh, the new people that's joined us this year, and we thank you, Father, for the faithful that have uh, held down uh, so much, Father, of what has made Turf great. Uh, we pray, Lord, that as we go into your word, God, that we're reminded, God, that you work uh, even in greater ways, Lord, even when your name is not mentioned, Father, that there's never uh, a time in which you are absent from the lives of your people, from the struggles of your people, uh, from uh, even the, the life and death situations of your people. And so, God, help us to be refreshed in that, even as this is the beginning of a three-sermon trilogy, God, on how you worked in the lives of these exiles. We pray, Lord, that you would just be with us as we go into it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so from the very beginning, we've shared that this is a story, so it helps to view it as a movie, and so we've been going with movie titles, which Gabe started, that's kind of cool. Uh, so today's movie title, movie title, today's sermon title that's from the movie is Mission Impossible, and how this kind of all fits is that chapters 5, 6, and 7 is part of a three-chapter like arc. Only, you're like all movie, this is the end. Yes. You're like all movie, this Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, so how this works is these three chapters covers two physical days. Okay, two days God works mightily in these three chapters. Each chapter you're going to see some kind of a setup. You're going to see then next week, well not next week, two weeks, there's this great work of God that then leads to some resolution. And then in chapter 7 you're going to see the episode of the, the major arc involving the major villain of Haman kind of coming to it's closure. Uh, but then today then, here's the expectation, is that you're going to see something that sets up the next two weeks. In fact, what I hope at the end of today is that you should have a lot of questions that are out in the air, that are in your mind. And, and they're serious questions. They're questions about how will the Jews survive this? They're questions about how is Esther going to help her people? There's questions about how is the villain going to be defeated? And that's exactly where we are left at the end of chapter 5. In fact, if you come away from today's sermon thinking that, you know what, it's another sermon, everything is fine, then I didn't do my job. Today is supposed to leave you kind of at the end a little bit worried, actually a lot worried, somewhat frustrated, somewhat mystified, and then wondering, okay, if God is not here, this is over. And then we'll see how God comes in in the next two sermons. So a really quick recap, um, most of it really touching from chapter 4 so that we can see how we arrived at this point. So we find in 3 and 4 that because of Haman, uh, he was able to pay off and bribe the king uh, to create this edict that is then extended to everyone. So you see in chapter 3, it's by horseback, it's going by all, kind, all kinds of areas in the kingdom and empire and saying, you know what? All the Jews will be exterminated on this particular day. They will all be killed at once and they will be plundered. 
for all their goods. This is chapter 3, verse 13. I'll read it for us really quick. And so letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. And one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So this is from the top down. And maybe, you know, we don't always relate to that because we live in a democracy where you might have the strongest voice, you might have the loudest voice, but there's still a rule of law. Well, in this instance, in an empire, the king, when he sends out this edict, it will happen on that day, a few months from now. Okay, all these Jews will be killed. And so you see that Mordecai, when he comes wind of it, is mourning, and he's really sad. But the funny thing is, Esther apparently didn't know much about it. So that's what we find, because even though she's a queen and she's in a royal court, she didn't really know about this. Otherwise, she should be feeling it too, but, but she didn't really know. So then she sees Mordecai, who is her adoptive uncle, you know, he's like, you know, sackcloth, ashes, doing all the things that Jewish people do to mourn. And he sends a messenger out to him sitting in front of the king's gate saying, hey, what's going on? And then Mordecai tells him in chapter 4. So that's what he preached on and he covered there. Then Mordecai shared with him this information. Now here's then is the challenge that comes from Mordecai. This is the part that connects to Mission Impossible. There's a tagline that says your mission should you choose to accept it. And then the message self-destructs, right? So it's talking to whatever agent it is and and updating them on what's going to happen. Well, Mordecai's then in exhortation to Esther, Queen Esther, was, well, you know what? Something has to be done about this, not just because you're the only one that can do it, but because we are God's covenant people, and we believe that God will protect his people. So, you know what? This is obviously something that connects with you, because you're the queen and you're Jewish, although no one knows. But if it's not you, God will still be sovereign. God will still be powerful. So we find here, going back a little bit, and starting in verse 13 of chapter 4, this is what Mordecai said. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. You will be killed too. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, because God is sovereign and will protect his people. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So this is the message. Will you accept this challenge? Will you accept this call to be used by God? Although God could use anyone, but it's clear that you're in a strategic position. Will you accept this call? And then we see that she does. Here are her responses to Mordecai's exhortation. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is probably not what you expect Queen Esther to say. In fact, this is not what you expect Esther to say at all. Because in chapter 3, you find that even though she was the queen, that she was more primarily associated with somebody that won a beauty contest that was a part of the royal court of the king that wasn't even privy to the inner workings of what was going on. Pretty much this queen, by title, was a trophy wife in truth. So you don't expect then Queen Esther to say, you know what, not only am I not afraid to do this, but I will give my life for this. And then there's one other thing that you see here is where Queen Esther tells Mordecai what to do. This is the beginnings of new things. 
she, she has accepted this mission to where before she was timid, before she did what her uncle Mordecai told her to do. So don't tell people I'm Jewish, okay, I won't. You know, just behave in this way in the courts, okay, I will. Okay, why don't you go and, and, and be the queen? It could be you. Okay, sure, I'll try. But this is the first time where upon hearing the mission that then Mordecai sees the beginnings of the tables turning and that not only is Queen Esther somebody that's willing to step up to a task, but she's now starting to be embracing of a role, a role of being somebody that God will use to accomplish his purposes even if she loses her life for it. This is not a minor turn. This is a major turn. And this is what sets up chapter 5. Because then we're going to see, okay, what is she going to do? I mean, she's all of a sudden Braveheart. What is she going to do? Even though she has this diminutive place as a woman in this royal court of this powerful and mighty king. Even though she's a queen, it really doesn't matter because the king does whatever he wants. What is she going to do? And that's where we begin with chapter Fine. Well, first of all, she comes in in a very different and grand way. So I'm going to read the first two verses for us in chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. She's not wearing the beauty pageant dresses. She's not wearing someone that puts her as just being another woman in the court that only existed to please the king. She was putting on her official queen formal robes and she came unannounced. This was a big deal because we saw this actually specifically mentioned in chapter 4 verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. So she is coming to the courts with her formal clothes saying, yes, I am the queen. I am here on official business to meet with the king. But she's not been invited, and she's not greater than anyone else, according to this law. So then, right away, as she is coming front and center to meet face-to-face -face with the king, you're wondering, okay, is that scepter going to go out? Is she going to be received by him? Or is this going to be a really quick end you know, to this effort to, to be brave part? I mean, is it going to end right here? It's over for the queen. So right away, then, we see how God begins to work. Verse 2. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and tucked, touched the tip of the scepter. Let's keep going, because it's more than just her entrance. Let's keep going. Let's see what she chooses to do. So starting in verse 3, and the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? Notice the formal address calling her a queen. It's because she's coming in robes. He's recognizing her. He's even giving some, you know, respect to her uh, in as much as, you know, a king would want to give. Um, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. 
Now you're thinking, is he meaning that? Half of his kingdom, is that true? Well, it's kind of a common phrase that people in great power of that time would say. If you guys remember um, when we preached the Gospel of Mark, and there's where Herod Antipas was pleased by the dancing of Herodias' daughter, right? And then what do you say? Oh, this is so great. What do you want? I will give you anything, even to the half of my kingdom. Same, same line, same quote. It was just culturally something that showed that, you know what, the king has open ears. The king is willing to hear your request. The king is soft-hearted and generous today to be able to listen to you. So let's keep going. Verse 4. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. That's kind of strange. Doesn't seem to be anything related to Jewish people or saving people or letting people live or, you know, destroying an edict or anything like that. Um, but let's go ahead and keep going here. So first five. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the first thing that the queen chose to do was to host a banquet. Kind of weird. But God will use that too. The king says, ask me anything. I will consider it and I will grant it to you. We don't know what Queen Esther was thinking, but all we know is that she didn't choose to ask for the thing she wanted right away. Instead, she asked for something that would be celebratory, something that would make the king look good, something that will bring everyone together in the same place, and then she'll tell you later. That, that's all she did. And you're kind of sitting there wondering, is, you know, what's the end game here? Well, we're not quite sure. But we do find something here about what the king does. The queen, the king listens to Queen Esther. So remember, she shows up unannounced. She could have been killed for that. He listens to her. She says, let's have a party. I don't want to tell you yet. I don't know about you, but you know, sometimes, especially among friends, if you're close, if someone's like, oh yeah, I got a secret. I can't wait to tell you, but I'll tell you later. That's like the worst thing ever, right? You're like, oh, I thought we were friends. You know, what's going on with this? You know, just text it to me or something. You know, you don't have to say it right now. I won't tell anyone. But it's kind of weird, but she's leaving him hanging. But here's the thing, he's responding. For some reason, God is moving in his heart so that he's not just retaliating or he's not just expressing frustration or he's not getting angry with her, but he responds. And not only that, Haman is his right-hand man. He says, hey, Haman, we're going to do what the queen wants us to do. There is already a heart change from the beginning of this encounter. Let's keep going. Verse 6. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom. Time number two. Time number two that the king is asking, Hey Esther, what do you want? I'm all ears. Tell me what you want. I'll listen with a big heart. I'm, I'm a little drunk now, so I'll probably give you what you want. What do you want? Well, might be the right time to ask, but this is what Esther says in verse 7. My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do 
as the king has said. What did Queen Esther just do? Queen Esther, at a party, just said, King, let's have another party. And you guys come back again. We will have another party tomorrow. And at that party, I'll tell you what is my heart, what is my desire. Now, if everything kind of goes according to plan, you know, if you're looking at your Google Calendar, you're like, okay, there's nothing between now and then, no problem. You know, that sounds great. Maybe she just likes parties. Maybe she's trying to get on his good side. But again, circumstances are not under her control beyond this point, right? She asked for a party. For some reason, she didn't ask for what she wanted and what her people needed. But you don't see her be anxious about it. You just see her proceeding one step at a time to respond to the king. She asks for a party. Again, kind of strange that she's delaying. She still doesn't present a request. It's almost like she's playing hard to get. You almost want her to get to the point already of how she can help the Jewish people be saved. Because at the end of the day, we're in the story because we're like, hey, we kind of want the good guys to be saved, right? He's not doing it. She's not doing it. So let's keep going. This next part is going to then present some of the obstacles and the challenges that will come in the way to what would be the plans that we see from the outside. Because we're seeing the intensity and the depth and the depravity of the main villain, who is Haman. Okay, so starting from verse 9, let me go ahead and read it for us. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Who wouldn't be? He just went through a really wonderful banquet. He's a little drunk too. Um, I remember Gabe mentioning about how they just really like drinking, so that's their thing. Um, so he's happy, but immediately you see in the middle of the verse, there's a turn. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, which is where he sits, right? He sits there, that's his role, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. So continuing as he has been since the beginning of Esther, that he is not bowing to the ancient enemy of someone that is from the people of the Malachites. He's not bowing to this Agagite, as Esther called Haman. So he's still not doing it. So he's the same. So then this happy and joyful Haman switches in the middle of verse to being filled with wrath against Mordecai. We're talking about somebody that was on top of the world, that was just so happy because guess what? As the right-hand man and the king, he just got invited to not only one party, but to a second party. He's important. That mattered to him. He was hanging out with the right people. But yet immediately, right when he sees somebody that wouldn't do something that he wanted them to do, then he got angry and wrathful and frustrated. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. So remember, this segment is talking about the heart of Haman, how it's revealed. We're going to see what Haman loves, okay? Let's look together in verse 11. What does Haman love? And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. What does Haman love? Haman loves Haman. Haman loves it when people love Haman. Haman loves it when Haman gets hooked up and gets to be 
in the right places and gets celebrated and gets honored. Haman loves it when he's the center of attention. And not only he knows that, but everyone knows that, that he is the most important person in the room. Now this week, um, I was at EVP Fullerton for the bulk of the week attending the Gospel Coalition West Conference. Uh, it, it, was, it was actually really fun. Uh, and it was interesting because I've never been to uh, this national level conference where like a good half of the people were Asians. It was very strange. I don't know if you've ever gone to the Gospel Coalition or like T4G or anything like that, you know, out these national 8,000, 10,000 people conferences. This one's a lot smaller. It's probably like 1,000 or 1,500. But you're like able to like see the other like eight Asians in the room. You know, you're like, oh, there you are, there you are. I know you, you know, you, you kind of are able to do that. But this was really strange. Like half the people were Asian. So it was kind of interesting because then there was like a pre-conference that had these Asian American leaders and pastors. And it, it, sometimes you kind of get that little bit of a feel, right? You see somebody, you're like, oh, I know that person. I want to talk to that person. Or worse yet, wait, I've met that person before. I need to know if he remembers me. Right? You can kind of see those things kind of, they just kind of come and then they hopefully pass on. But this gathering, this congregating of people from different places, it has you kind of just noticing details about people that maybe you wouldn't notice before. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think there's always a little part of us that you don't have to be the most important person in that room, but you like to know that someone else in that room knows and cares about you, even if it's like a couple other people, right? I mean, I think that the, the sense of loneliness really comes from being in a room, no matter how many people you are with, it could be 50, it could be five, it could be a thousand, but feeling like you're the only person in that room. That's what loneliness feels like. I'm not trying to explain what causes it. I'm just telling you what it feels like. It's not the number of people. It's just your sense of belonging and identif identifying with others in the same place. Right? You just feel like no one else understands you. No one is with you. That's loneliness. So Haman has combated that in his life by just making sure that everybody knows how great he is. Because this is the level of conversation he was having with his closest friends. He went home with his wife, some of his close friends, and hey, let me tell you all about me. Let me tell you what makes me wake up in the morning. Let me tell you what gives me true joy, what makes me feel important. And these are all ways in which other people make him somebody. So here's the issue. Mordecai was that one person that out of you know thousands that Haman could see, and maybe hundreds of thousands that Haman had control over, that would not do that simple courtesy of, hey, Haman, you're important. Haman, I recognize you. Haman, you're better than me. He's the one guy that wouldn't do it. And as Haman calls him, Mordecai the Jew. So specific, so targeted. That's why he saw him and became angry. But that's also why he wanted to get rid of the Jews, all of them, because there's more people that would respond to him the way that Haman has, and that's not acceptable. And so what you find then in verse 14 is his friends and his wife coming up with this great plan, this brilliant idea for how Haman could be all that he wants to be, be the most important person 
in the room, in the empire. Verse 14. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. You know, there's some things that are pretty telling about what you find here even in this last phrase. So Haman, who claims to be, you know, this leader of men, worthy of respect, at the end of the day, he doesn't have one good idea of his own. At the end of the day, this person that's supposed to be important, have authority, is given an idea that's a little bit crazy. You, you know, this, this, this pole that you would use to hang someone, to impale somebody on, this pole is huge. It's really big. Have you guys ever been to SeaWorld? Yes, sir. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Pick the right one. Okay, so been to SeaWorld, when you're driving by, it's kind of flat because yes. it's Mission Beach, but then you see the big tower that becomes a Christmas tree, right? As you're driving by, Mission Beach. It's like lights, Christmas tree. You can see it from far away. You know, when we're talking about, what is the saying? 20, no, 50 cubits. A cubit is about, you know, the, the width of your arm right here. 50 cubits, that, that's pretty tall. I mean, let's say, you know, between 40 to 50 meters. That's a really tall thing to put in the air in front of someone's house. Let's just build a gallows that's 50 cubits tall. Why is it there? Who cares? Who's going to ask? Everyone's going to ask. This is kind of a crazy idea. But he was pleased with it. He loved it because you can imagine how much attention it would draw that somebody would be hung from there, that someone would be impaled on there with this pole. I mean, who's going to ever disrespect Haman again? This wasn't even his idea. That's the sad thing. But he was so happy to hear it. And what is the timing of this? The timing is to get this thing up right away so that Mordecai could be sentenced. Don't know how, but Mordecai could be sentenced to hang on there by the king in the morning. So where are we right now in terms of them, all of this? Let's look at what is happening and what is about to happen. This is after the first banquet, right? Where the king and the queen and Haman are partying and festive, where he was offended. What did Esther ask for? Esther didn't ask for the freedom of, his, of her people. Esther didn't ask for leniency on the Jews. Esther asked for party number two, the next night. That's all she said. You're like, okay, well, you're a great event planner, apparently, but how are you saving God's people? When you said, if I perish, I perish, you're not going to perish because you're a party planner. You're fine. You're doing your queen thing. You plan parties. So that's already weird. But then let's look at the timing. So we have Haman that's driven by this insane plan to get Mordecai killed, impaled, hung on this giant pole in front in the middle of the city. What is that supposed to happen in the morning? Esther stepped up to the challenge of being God's person to save her people, the Jews. That includes her uncle Mordecai. She had no idea that Haman was thinking these things in her head. She couldn't have known because she's not God. She was just walking by faith. We don't understand 
what it is that was going on in her heart, how God was leading her, but she was just walking by faith. But even before the next step of her plan can come to fruition, her uncle, according to Haman's plan, would already be killed by the morning. He was the person that was instrumental in even bringing her into this fight, into this journey, giving her that ownership of her identity as one of God's covenant people rather than as a queen or as a person in the property and the use and in the ownership of the king. She was becoming the woman of God, but yet her plans don't seem to be working. Not only that, the king has no idea. She has not shared anything. And Haman's head just keeps getting bigger. Haman seems to be getting crazier with his ideas. He seems to be getting more radical with his hatred of the Jews. He seems to be getting more fanatic about being the most important person in the kingdom besides the king, which means there's going to be no person that will disrespect him or dishonor him. That's where we left off. That's where we left off. You're looking ahead from this position. You're seeing that Mordecai could be dead in the morning, and God's people have no rescue. And the queen, by the virtue of her inaction or her strange actions, could actually have things happen to her that, you know, would be tragic. And then the edict is still on. So that's where the sermon ends. That's where I want you guys to think then. What is God going to do? Because if he doesn't do something, what should you be thinking? It's over. This isn't a Hollywood movie. It's over. There is no great miracle that's going to happen that has a happy ending. But God, if he chooses to do something, anything, whatever it is at all, to change the situation. So I want us to end with some thoughts then of how this connects to us. Okay. So this is when you're in your community groups, I want you guys just to share. So, you know, the purpose of today isn't to then to, to take apart all the details of the message. It's a trilogy. It'll, it'll, it'll build on each other. You'll, you'll see this unveil. Um, if you have questions, you know, study it. That's fine. Talk about it if you like. But, but I want you guys to see, well, in the exposition and in the unveiling of people's hearts, where might we even as exiles and aliens in a culture that is not primarily Christ-centered or sees Jesus as king, where might we find some of these issues in our hearts? It might be more prevalent or more... Um, and it might be a bigger deal than we think. So we saw what Haman loved very clearly. I mean, it, it was like God ripped open his chest to see into his heart when he shared with his wife and his friends. What did Haman love? Haman loved Haman. In your community groups, if you're willing and open, you don't have to go like lengthy, you don't have to share a lot, but at least I want you guys to consider, well, what do you love? Some of those things would be, you know, good and godly and wonderful, but maybe some of those things are not and how does it manifest itself in your life? What do you love? 
So if you're willing to share about that a little bit, I think that'll go a long way in really processing through this text. The second thing is for you guys to recognize and reflect on the hidden hand of God in your life. Now, right now, we don't know what's going to happen, but the Jews are in a bad situation. Mordecai is in a bad situation. Queen Esther is in an unstable situation. But if God acts, anything can happen. But even taking a step back from chapter 5, we see that God has already acted without his name ever being mentioned, without a prayer ever being said, without a prophet ever stepping on the scene, without any sermon preached or scripture referenced. God is already working. So where is the hidden hand of God in your life? I'm not asking you to all of a sudden like come up with like some you know big story of how all of these things fit in. No, name one thing. Name one thing by which if it wasn't for God that you wouldn't be who you are now. You wouldn't be where you are now. You wouldn't do what you're doing now. You wouldn't want what you want now. You wouldn't have what you have now. The hidden hand of God, one thing by which you can reflect and think about it and just see that, you know what? But God, this wouldn't be me. You know, this even ties into how we grow into the discipline of prayer. Because what is prayer except that you take the time that you set aside for God to really let him point out ways in which he has been active and present in your life whether it's to answer your prayers, whether it's to meet your needs, whether it's through scriptural promises of what he'll do and who he is. And you just tell God in full surrender and faith of what you need from him, of what you love about him, what you are grateful for from him. So doing this, seeing the hidden hand of God in your life, even in one thing, maybe even today, it grows you then to respond to God in prayer. It grows you to respond to God in how you live. Because you realize that, but God, you wouldn't be who you are. You wouldn't be where you are. You wouldn't be what you are. I mean, here's even a simple question. Why are you here Friday night at Turf? I'm not just saying, you know, someone dragged me here or I took a car to get here or I'm supposed to be here or I didn't have anything else to do. But think bigger. Hidden hand of God. Why are you here? If God is real and he works in the lives of his people, why are you here? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this time that we have to be able to see, Father, what can only amount to confusion and frustration and... Um, desperation for us from our limited point of view as human beings, even a couple thousand years removed from the actual story. Lord, we just don't know what's going to happen, Father, because if it was us, we probably wouldn't have written the story this way. If it was us, we might have done things differently. If it was us, we might have acted in ways that would have led to different outcomes in our plans. But we thank you, Lord, that your ways are higher than our ways and that you do not leave your covenant people in Christ, abandoned and alone. Father, even through our trials, you walk with us and you carry us. And even through suffering and pain, you are glorified.
because of what you're doing in us and how your name is being proclaimed in word and deed through our obedience. And so, Father, we pray, Lord, as we have this time of response and as we break up back into our community groups, Lord, that we would just think simply about how you are working in our lives right now and what are the things, Father, that we love. Some of those things draw us closer to you. Some of those things steer us away from you. So we ask, God, that you will meet with us as your people. In Jesus' name I pray.